And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Many of you uh, remember back to the 2015 Academy Awards. You might remember a young man named Grant Moore, who wrote the uh, screenplay for the movie The Imitation Game and won the Academy Award and used the platform to uh, speak to uh, his own struggles uh, in life and encourage others uh, who were going through some of the same. Uh, It was a powerful, courageous speech coming from a young prodigy who has written uh, not just an Academy Award-winning movie, but uh, best-selling books, the latest of which, The Last Days of Night, uh, appear this week. He's a really interesting and inspiring guy, and I sat down with him uh, recently to talk about his book and his life. Uh, Graham Moore, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me back to the south side of Chicago. Ha- happy to have you back to the south side of Chicago. You, uh, you, you actually attended school down here when you were a kid. I did. I went to lower school, middle school, and high school at the lab school, just a couple blocks away from where we're sitting right now. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was a great place. I mean, you probably know the University of Chicago a lot more int- intimately than I do. Um, I was just here as a as a kid, but um, you know, I grew up in Hyde Park or in Lincoln Park on the north side, and then would come down here to school every day. And being like on a university campus, having professors around, you know, a lot of my friends at school were the children of professors. Mm-hmm. There was this kind of very studious, academic minded rigor to the whole thing, which I think, um, you know in hindsight, uh, probably set up a lot of the interests and excitements uh, that follow me into what I do now. You, uh, uh, you're, you were more suited for it than I was. I, I came here as a 17-year-old to go to the University of Chicago, <clears throat> and all I wanted to do was follow politics. And um, I always joked that at that time, it was hard to find anybody at the University of Chicago who wanted to talk about anything that happened after 1800. <laughs> so that's why I became a reporter was because I wanted to satisfy my interest in in politics. So I started writing about Chicago politics and politics more broadly while, while I was here. But you, uh, you're, you're a phenomenal story in that you're a young guy, you're 34 years old, God, and I'm you've so already young. Won, a, and a, won an Academy Award, you've written best-selling books. You just have a new one out, which we'll talk about um, shortly. Um, did, did the, did, but, so you feel you got grounding here. that Because your stuff is amazingly... Re, you write historical novels, and you wrote a historical script, as it were, it was, in, in the, uh, the imitation game. The... the um, did... Did that sort of grounding in history come here? Uh, If you had asked me when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 16, if I thought I was going to grow up to write uh, historical fiction, I think I would have said you're crazy. Um, But I was, you know, I think I I was one of the great things that I took away from lab school and the education I got there are the people I was in school with. Um, My best friend and former writing partner Ben is someone from my class at lab. We moved to New York at the same time. We were both in college in New York. Um, 
You went we, to Columbia. I went to Columbia. You know, I've known Ben since I was six years old. Um, and he lives a mile away from me in Los Angeles now. And, you know, we talk almost every day. And and the sense of finding people with common interests who are excited th- about the things that you're excited about. I think that the lab school was great about allowing students to pursue their own, uh, let's just say, unique and curious set of interests, which I've certainly felt this great freedom to be able to do. Um, you know, I grew up loving movies. I always sort of dreamed of working in movies. Um, I loved fiction. I loved historical pieces. I loved scientists. You know, I tend to write about scientists and mathematicians and I think a real respect for, I, I grew up with a respect for those people. I think sometimes, sometimes people write about scientists as if they're these like, as if they're like Merlin or these like sort of alchemical masters who um, come down from a mountaintop with these kind of like the Ten Commandments, these grand proclamations or something. Yeah. Well, Edison, you you know, was referred to as the wizard as you. Yeah. Uh, so it, that was his nickname, the Wizard of Menlo Park, is what they called him at the time. A nickname that I think he probably invented and propagated. <laughs> uh, he was. We can talk about his mastery of the press um, yeah. as well. Um, he was a very good nicknamer. But you, um, but but so you were, you had this interest in science. Mm-hmm. You had this interest in in math. You had you obviously have an interest in um, these uh, very sort of technical kinds of things. But you never wanted to be that. You know, when I was when I was a teenager, I did. I was really into uh, computers when I was a teenager. I went to computer programming camp. I went to space camp. Um, I was that kid, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, what I what I learned as I got a little older was that I loved computer programming. I loved um, I loved technology, but I was really bad at it. Um, I there were people around me who were much better at programming than I was, and I feel like that's been a running process throughout my life: is finding this intersection of the things that I get really excited about, and then things that I seem to be able to do well with. Um, you know, like yourself, there was a there was a moment where I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I loved that kind of writing. Um, but then tried it out for a minute, um, kind of in college and just after, and had a similar experience of like, oh, there's these people around me who are really good at this, and this is a kind of writing that I am not as good at. And so I you always, I was But better. writing was always a... Yeah, I always loved writing. Um, I always loved being able to organize my thoughts that way, um, to really spend the time. And that's, I think, one of the tricks with journalism is that the kind of writing I do, I can spend six years on a novel. I can spend five years on a film, you know, just endlessly redoing it and redoing it and redoing it until I've made the point that I would like to make yeah. clearly. Yeah. Well, that's a luxury because you've been successful at it. And so people will pay you to sit there and work it over and over again. That's a great blessing. Frequently they don't pay me. I just keep doing it anyway because I love <laughs> it so much. Listen, you, uh, I was really, really moved. And we know each other. Your mom's a friend of mine. She worked in the uh, Obama administration yes. as Michelle Obama's chief of staff. She was corporation counsel for the city of Chicago uh, for uh, Mayor Daley. And she works at the University of Chicago. So we know each other well. And I knew that you were up for this Academy Award, and so we had a rooting interest uh, when uh, your uh, screenwriting uh, best adapted screenplay category came up, and you won. Your mom was there with you, and then you made this speech that may be one of the most memorable Oscar speeches 
of all time. And it really, and it really, I, I know we communicated after that. I'm sure you heard from lots and lots of people. But here in part is what you said. You said, I would like for this moment to be for that kid out there who feels like she doesn't fit anywhere. You do stay weird, stay different. And then when it's your turn and you are standing on the stage, please pass that same message along. And what you were, what you talked about was the fact that when you were a kid, you felt you were that person and you contemplated suicide and... Mm -hmm. The message I took away from it is that you can come out of that dark tunnel and and find a better place, and there's a future ahead of you, which is an important message. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the fact that my dad committed suicide when I was uh, a young man, and um, it, was, uh, it was a mind-boggling thing to think about what kind of pain that must have entailed uh, for him, pain that he didn't share uh, with me. But you as a young guy, talk a little bit about depression and how you worked your way out of it. Yeah, I think think one of the tricky things about, about talking about depression is that sometimes people will sort of ask, what was wrong? What was the problem? What was the matter? What was what was the source of this? And the trick with depression is that I think it isn't something that responds to external stimulus. It's internal. It, the it is something that happens, um, and there can be things that make it worse and make it better. But it's fundamentally generated within one's own mind and it's not a response it's not like something bad happened yesterday so now i'm depressed or something good will happen tomorrow and then i'll be less depressed it doesn't respond to stimulus in that way so i think i was um i was a deeply unhappy teenager um and it was something i was very lucky at that time to have um, a set of friends around me, um, uh, family around me who were very supportive, who I give them all of the credit for helping me through it and talking me through it and making sure I have always felt like there is a network of people around me who love me and who care about me and who depend on my continued presence um, as they did then. And I think that meant the world to me when I was 16 and it means the world to me now. I think, I think when I was 16, I went through this, this very rough patch. And, um, when I came out of it, here's sort of, how do you get to the point of, I mean, what, what goes through your mind when you're a 16 year old and you're contemplating taking your own life. And that happens by the way, far too often. I mean, Mm -hmm. this has been a growing problem. Uh, suicide among adolescents. So um, I think it's it's kind of important to talk about. Yeah, I think, I think I felt like I was terribly unhappy and I was always going to feel, always going to feel terribly unhappy. And there was nothing that could happen that would make me feel better. There was no, there was no event. There was no thing that would happen that would cheer me up. And it sort of felt like, well, if I'm, if I'm always going to feel this way, if I will never feel differently, then what's the point? Um, why, why continue to allow myself to feel this way? And I think in a sense, for me, the, the thought was, oh, 
suicide was the only, it felt like a solution, perhaps not an ideal one, but at least that's something that can be done. And you said in your speech uh, at the Oscars you, that you were that kid, that you felt a little bit out of sync with yeah. others. I think, I mean, at heart, honestly, I, I know this sounds, uh, I was just a weird kid. Like, there's no... Uh, there's no kind of better way to explain it. Like I was just really weird. I was socially awkward and um, I had a, you know, a hard time in groups and I got panic attacks and a lot of anxiety and. Yeah. So you were well aware of that. I mean, you, you, you felt that way that you were not, that you didn't fit in. Yeah, very much so. And so, but here's the irony of it. I say that now I say, Oh, I had such a hard time feeling like I felt it. I had feeling I had such a hard time fitting in and feeling like I belonged. And yet, I look back on it and I had a couple of really close friends. I had wonderful parents. I had a great little brother. I had um all these people around me who there was this network of people. I just didn't allow myself to acknowledge how meaningful it was at the time. And and how did you come to, how did you navigate through that? Um, I think with the help of the people I was just talking about, mm-hmm. I think my brother was great. My mother was wonderful. Um, uh, my grandfather, for whom uh, this novel is dedicated, yes. um, I remember him. He lived in New Jersey. He flew out to Chicago. He spent a weekend with me. Was a doctor, right? Yep, he was yeah. a doctor. Um, he he told me a story um, in, from his life uh, about. Um, it was very funny. It was like he was trying to relate to me, so he told me this very sweet story of you know he was in medical school and things were going badly, and it was sort of like the only time that I've ever considered stepping in front of a train was when I was in medical school and bombed a test or something, um, and it was kind of this endearing story of. Uh, him sort of trying to relate to me and just make me feel like there was this network and this multi-generational network Mm -hmm. of people who um of people who cared about me and depended on me and who were sort of in this with me yeah yeah well and i i guess unless he made the story up that people go through these things, you know, there. This is, you know, my my sense is that when you're going through it, your sense is no one else could be going through that. This is uniquely your problem. This is some, you know, there are no. This is not an illness. This is not something that other people experience. This is very much within your own, and that's not true. I mean, the fact is that lots of people go through this mental illness is an illness. And uh, I think it's an important thing to stress. Yeah, I think it's something that people have a hard time talking about. I think it's something that people have a hard time, especially discussing publicly. Um, there's, there's That's why, by the way, it. I so appreciate you doing it. I think it's very courageous. It, and, and maybe it shouldn't be courageous. We should get to the point where it's not courageous to talk about these things. Well, I'll tell you, it's something... I'll tell you this, when I was, when I was 16 and when I came through, when I came through out of the end of, of the worst patch of it, um, this sounds, this sounds crazy to discuss in hindsight, but I, I made this deal with myself. Um, when you're a 16 year old who grows up loving movies, you always kind of imagine that like, 
oh, what if one day, what if one day I win an Academy Award? You know, I watch the Oscars every year with my friends and we dress up and have a party and do this. And um, I always said, you know, this isn't something, this isn't information that I'd like to follow me around my whole life. We kept it from the people in school. Most of the people I went to school with didn't know any of this had happened. Um, my friends did a great job of keeping it secret. Um, a lot of my teachers didn't know. I then went off to New York for college where I told no one about this. Cause I when didn't you want say this happened, I mean, we don't want to, we don't have to delve into the details, but that you, yeah, that I attempted you suicide. attempt a, a suicide. Yeah. And so, um, we were able to keep, at my request, we were able to keep that incident and this sort of period of my life. Because um, I think sometimes people talk about it as if that singular incident is like a synecdoche for the whole, and it sort of is, but it really was this kind of long patch of a period of which that was one moment within it. Um, and I think that... So yeah, it was something that this had happened that I went through this period and that, that these issues were something that I was going to continue dealing with for my rest of my life. It's not like they ever go away. Mm -hmm. um, it's something one manages and something one learns how to manage. Um, and as I helped develop a set of tools to learn how to manage it throughout the rest of my life, um, it was, I felt a lot of shame about it. I felt like, oh, I live in New York now, I'm in college, I don't want people, I don't want this to be the first thing people think of when they see me. I don't yeah. want this to be like an elephant in the room of every conversation I have. Yeah. And and it's, you wonder how many people you encountered were some, going through something similar and thinking the same thing. And they never told me. Right. And, well, and that's been one of the lovely things about getting to um, discuss it publicly. Um uh, which was something, so the point of the story or the, the end of the story is that I basically said to myself when I was 16, I made myself a deal that was like, I'm never going to discuss this publicly. I'm never going to have this be something that people associate with me unless I win an Academy Award. The <laughs> only time I will ever talk about this is on stage, the Academy Awards. And I know that sounds just bonkers and it was pretty bonkers. Um, Apparently so not. It sense, well, yeah, you don't think, I think it was my way of being like, well, that's never going to happen. So now I never have to do this. Now I never have to talk about it publicly. So yeah. my first book comes out, I did press and the movie comes out and we're doing all this press and I never talked about it, never talked about it. And in the back of my mind, there's this little like thing of, oh, wait, damn it. I made myself that promise. Do I really have to do that? Like, I, I, but it felt like this thing of, as we, as we got close to the Academy Awards, uh, it was just, I, and that night I re sort of realized, you know what, I made this deal with myself when I was at, when things were at their worst, I, I made a promise to myself then, and I got through it, and I owe it to the kid who I was then to stay true to my promise, and to make, sort of get up on stage and admit this publicly, and... Um, and what that meant, though, was that, you know, there had been all these people in my life afterwards um, who who did come up to me and talk about it. You know, I went to the next day I go to my yoga place where I go. I live in L.A., so this is a routine yes. thing to do. I go to yoga every yes. other day. I think day. it's mandated, though, yes. isn't it? Yes. Um, you get it with your uh, Los Angeles, with your California driver's license. <laughs> yes. So I go to my yoga place and a woman comes Given up the freeways me. out there, you could probably do it in your car. <laughs> Anyway, I save a lot of time. Yes. Yeah, so I go to the yoga place, and there's this woman who I've 
known casually for years because we go to the same yoga place and she comes up to me and she tells me the story and she tells me a story about her daughter and yeah. it was like you know someone you wave to from time to time and she was like thank you for saying that uh publicly and now you someone i actually know we can have this conversation about and i yes. realized there's all these people who could talk about it more and should should hopefully be able to talk about it more i i have to tell you that um for 30 years after my father died i i never talked about it ever publicly talked about for the same reason i felt like it was somehow a blemish on him that it was uh, that i was ashamed of him of 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 how he died Hmm. yes that that it was somehow a character defect on his part and i loved him he was he was my best friend and he was a great man um and then i realized yeah he was a great man and even great men can have can grapple with mental health mental illness and it was the it was because of that same impulse that same impulse to feel shame about it was why he and he was a mental health professional mm. never got help never got help and so i wrote a piece for the chicago tribune on fathers day about this 30 years later and i never you know i've been writing for 40 years or more i've never gotten more reaction to anything I've ever written really than that because and it was all people who said thank you for for saying this stuff because you know I've got this in my own life or I've got my and you know we we have to have these discussions so I really honor you for your honoring of your own promise because there are a lot of 16 year olds out there who benefited from what you said that night and um, the best thing we can do is help other people understand that they're that they're not alone, yeah, and that there's a way forward. So uh, I, I'm I'm uh, I, I told you this privately. I'm telling you this now, and hopefully we can all continue this discussion. We have Patrick Kennedy on the podcast who's uh, working on mental health issues now uh, and is a tremendous advocate for people with mental illness. And, uh, you know, we want to keep having that discussion. Let's talk about your career. Which <laughs> yeah, you want to talk I, I about find, historical fiction now? <laughs> I, I, I really, I do, uh, because it, you're, it's a phenomenal thing. Uh, uh, I guess your first big breakthrough was the novel, The Sherlockian. Talk about that. Um, and, uh, and how, how you came to write this book. Yeah. Um, that, the process of that book started when I was, God, I think I must've been 23, something like that. And it was a, it was a true story. Um, there's sort of two true stories, uh, that I combined in the novel. One from the life of Arthur Conan Doyle, who, uh, obviously wrote, uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories. And then another true story about, um, the murder under very mysterious circumstances of a Sherlock Holmes scholar um, in 2003. Um, And so I remember reading about um, this sort of mysterious death in the newspaper in, in at the time in the New York times and sort of saying, Oh my God, this is an amazing story. Like there's an, this is so fascinating. And And this had to do with the mystery of why Arthur Conan Doyle, killed off Sherlock Holmes and then brought him back 
and no one ever solved that mystery. And this guy apparently was hot on the trail of that. Is that a fair uh, summation? Very much so. So Arthur Conan Doyle had, he kind of wrote the first handful of home stories, um, and then Sherlock Holmes dies, falls off the Reichenbach Falls with his arch nemesis Moriarty. And then for seven years, every publisher in the world basically is writing Conan Doyle. Literally, they sent him blank checks if you will write more home stories. And he always said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm yeah. better than this. I, he despised Like the Harry Holmes. Potter situation. Exactly. Yeah. He despised Holmes. There was this great story where um, Conan Doyle's mother writes him a letter and says, oh, can you, can you sign one of your books for my neighbor? She's a big fan. He says, sure. And she says, oh, and can you sign the book Sherlock Holmes? And he's like, even my mother wants me to be Sherlock Holmes. They don't want me to be Arthur. And he had this huge, he was like competitive with his own character. Yes. Why was that the name that everyone knew? Um, so then very mysteriously, seven years later, one day, he brings him back. He starts writing more stories. Um, and no one quite knew why. And there was also this other mystery where um, Conan Doyle kept a diary every day of his life. Um, and when he passed away some years later, uh, one volume of it was missing from his library uh, after his death. And they tried to find this for 80 years. People were digging around for it. Um, it was worth millions if anyone could find it. Um, and uh, this one guy sort of claimed that he had, and then shortly thereafter was found murdered in his flat in London. And so I was... Captivated by this story, um, captivated by this. How did this all come to your attention? Honestly, I just read a New York Times story one day about um, this death and mm -hmm. said, "This you is were a, you were a Sherlock Holmes aficionado." Uh, yes, I mm -hmm. think in in some of the the lonely periods of my life that we were discussing earlier as a teenager, I would stay up all night obsessively yeah. rereading. The I used Sherlock to read them myself when I was a kid. They're great. Yeah. They're um, I still look at them as an inspiration for clear and concise storytelling yeah i think that storytelling like that uh is it's maybe not even once in a generation it might be once in a century i mean th there is a reason those stories have endured so well in the popular imagination yeah how do you but let me just take a, a quick digression yeah. here to ask you how do you as a mystery novel um uh, yours are i wouldn't describe yours quite that way but but as an aficionado of them, how do you compare Conan Doyle with sort of the Ross McDonald's and the Raymond Chandler's and the hard-boiled detective stories that are very much built around sort of the atmospherics and the... Well, you're an L.A. guy, so you can appreciate that. <laughs> I can appreciate that there are other places that have atmosphere that are not Los Angeles. <laughs> um, I think... I mean, Conan Doyle did do just a masterful job of conjuring... Uh, London in the 1880s and early 1890s. And one of the really interesting things about the home stories is that one of the sort of really fateful decisions that Conan Doyle made is that he ends up, after he brings them back, he writes them over this 30-something year period. Um, he then, uh, he didn't age Holmes along with the times, except a couple little times, but basically he didn't. He kept Holmes in, you know, 1880s and 90s. And that sort of like James Bond. Yes. Um, and that ends up being a really fateful decision because he kind of exists in this halcyon, murky um, uh, world where the gas lamps only, 
you know, expose 15 feet into the distance and it's all, it's all kind of dark and mysterious and cool and there's cobblestones and it sounds quite glamorous, especially to Americans. Um, and, and at the same time, I think he was, I don't think Conan Doyle necessarily gets enough credit as a writer of dialogue. Um, Holmes is really funny. Yeah. Uh, like his, he's witty and sharp and kind of condescending to everyone else. Yes. Um, as the smartest guy in the world would be. Yeah. And, and again, that fateful decision to tell the home stories. I think one of the things I learned from Conan Doyle, uh, that I've taken with me is finding unexpected perspectives from which to tell stories. One of Conan Doyle's brilliant inventions was that the home stories are not from Holmes's perspective. They're from Watson's. Watson is the narrator. You mm-hmm. never go inside his sidekick, Dr. Yeah. Watson. Exactly. Watson and Watson's us. Watson's like a reasonably clever guy who does what any normal person would do in those situations. And it never worked out because he's not a genius on Holmes's level. Right. And we see, we get a, a narrator that we can identify with in the presence of this kind of masterful genius. And that was something, if you look at the stuff I've done later, you know, imitation game, we always talked about how it's, a World War II movie told from the perspective of some mathematicians in a little hut in the south of England. Um, we're not going to show you the war, this kind of majestic, um, like Saving Private Ryan-style war that you've seen before. We're, we're never going to leave the hut, and we're just going to show you what the war felt like for these mathematicians. And then with Last Days of Night, my new book, um, you know, it's about the kind of great scientific rivalry of the 19th century, which was between, I would argue, was between Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse, and Nikola Tesla. But the story isn't told from their perspectives. It's told from the perspective of this young, ambitious, 26-year-old lawyer who Westinghouse hires to defend himself against Edison's legal attacks. And this idea of... Now, is that your character? Is that... Does that character character exist? Uh, He exists. And in fact, just the day before yesterday, I was in New York at the the law firm, Cravath, Swain & Moore, that he uh, would later take over and he became a named partner, and it still has a huge building in midtown Manhattan. Um, He becomes... He was a real person. And that was... That was something else that I've found, I think, that follows me through through the work that I've done is I kind of find these real stories and they seem so fascinating to me. I just want to learn more and more about them and I get obsessively into them. And, you know, when I read, I'd read about Edison before, I'd read about Westinghouse and Tesla before, but I'd never heard the story of Westinghouse's attorney. And he turns out to be one of the most influential attorneys of the 20th century. Um, and that was... But this was his big breakthrough. We, well, you know what? Before we get to the book... Oh, yeah, sorry. We keep we the chronology just, is getting... Yeah, yeah, no. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll finish my own point on uh, those mysteries. I think the, um, the, there, the, there is a darkness to those hard-boiled detective novels where you have the smart and, and you know, sort of basically good... Uh, a protagonist, but at the end of the day, they often can't set things right. Uh, Holmes is a cleaner, it seems like a cleaner kind of a cleaner narrative uh, mm-hmm. than uh, than those very, very dark. I, I enjoyed those, but um, I like the side of the mouth kind of dialogue that you find in those. But let's, uh, I want to talk about the imitation game before we get to sure. the book because um, 
I want to stay sequential here. <laughs> how now you're when did you write the Sherlockian? How how So I started the Sherlockian. So what happened with the Sherlockian was I was 23, I started reading these newspaper stories of being fascinated by this real case, um, started reading biographies of Conan Doyle, realizing that there was this great idea for uh, a mystery novel here. And, but I'd never written a novel. I didn't know how to write a novel. I was, um, I had a day job. I was a sound engineer actually in New York. And you have, you, you have music is another interest of yours. Yes. If you asked me at the time, I thought I was going to go into music. I thought, um, I opened up a small recording studio with my brother and a friend um, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and I thought I wanted to be a record producer. Um, that seemed didn't that seem glamorous and fun? Um, as uh, as the sound engineers who are in the room with us recording this conversation can attest, it is not glamorous. There yeah. is nothing glamorous about this job. Yeah. Um, but I loved it, and um, I will say that one thing I learned from that experience, from making records with a couple bands, was. Th- the value of collaborative art. Mm-hmm. I think people tend to talk about great art as being the products of singular authors. And I think that is imaginary. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, writing can be such a solitary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and But some of the great, some of the most rewarding creative experiences are collective experiences with others. I mean, I, I, you know, it's kind of a leap here, but that's why I enjoyed campaigns so much, being around a lot of bright people, you know, together in a cause and bouncing ideas off of each other constantly. And, you know, it was, um, uh, it is, I think, you know, very energizing. Writing, on the other hand, uh, is hard. You know, when I was writing my book, mm-hmm. uh, the president said to me, just remember, nine days out of 10, you are going to be miserable, and it's going to be like pushing a boulder up a hill. And on the 10th day, you're going to feel like you've got it. And then you wake up on the 11th day, and the boulder will have fallen fallen down again, and you just have to keep pushing that boulder. It's a real pep talk he gave you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was actually good because he was right, and I just he said just, you know, write your first draft, power through, and then you can go back and, you know, you're just laying brick right now. You can go back and, or, with for, you know, the refinements later. It was, it was good. But, but so you enjoyed that experience, and yet you ended up in what is a pretty, a pretty isolated kind of pursuit, creative pursuit. It's, it's a reason I like to go back and forth. I found that I like to go back and forth between novels and films. Um, you know, films are so collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yes, I wrote the script for The Imitation Game, but, you know, I worked very closely with our producers, Nora Ito and Teddy, with our director, Morton. You know, we had a wonderful... You sound like an Oscar speech <laughs> right here, but... Well, we were... I mean, they were all... I will say... It's a chance to get out all the names that you couldn't get out that <laughs> night. That night. Yes. Um, you know, I... I, we, I worked closely with our editor, Billy. Like, we were all this, um, yeah. it was just a small team. I think it's a cool th- thing. Working on a team, you must have done this in campaigning. Yeah. The value making of making ads, making films. Yeah. The value of a loyal antagonist, of someone who you have the same goal. You want, there's something you're trying to make, and it has to be great. And you both want it to be so great. And you have different visions of how to get there, I think is. Uh, you know, it's frustrating and it's annoying. And at the time, you may curse the name of the person sitting next to you. Cause but it may be that they have an inspiration that you didn't have that, that ultimately makes it better. 
Yeah. Which is really it that's 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 the magic, you know. Um and so I feel like I always I am privileged to be able to do this to surround myself with with loyal antagonists. You know, my editor Noah on on my novels is we spend hours and hours on the phone, you know, with him begging me to cut this or cut that or something and we fight about it and he's you know, I think there is something about I think I learned making music to trust the opinion of of other people. I mean, you play a piece of music for someone and you can see it on their face. They respond to it or they don't. Yeah. And if they don't respond to it, why? Do you you can say, "Oh, I respond to it, so go away." But if they don't, I think there's interesting questions about, okay, why why is this person not responding to it? Why is this person whose taste I appreciate, whose the taste I value, not responding to it? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get, how did you come to write that script? You know, so I had always wanted to write about Alan Turing as we were, um, as we Explain were who Alan Turing was. He wasn't just a mathematician. But. He was so much more than a mathematician. Alan Turing um, was essentially the guy who, a uh, British mathematician, who um, essentially invented the modern computer um, and broke, led the team that broke the Nazi Enigma code during the Second World War, which allowed for, I would argue, won the Allies the mm-hmm. war. Um, however, none of that was known. Uh, all of that became kind of very secret uh, after the war, um, because a few years after the war, he was, um, arrested by the British police, um, and charged with indecency because it was revealed that he was gay. And that was in 1951 in, in Britain, uh, against the law. Um, he was effectively caught, um, in bed with another man and, uh, he was given a choice between, uh, two years in prison or chemical castration. Um, he chose the castration um, because he wanted to continue his mathematical work. Um, and uh, a year and a half later, um, he killed himself um, uh, in response to this, uh, the, I would argue, the terrible hormones that had gone through his body as a result of the sort of chemical castration process, um, as well as the public shame. Mm-hmm. Of he'd lost his university position. He couldn't teach. Right. He was totally ostracized. Yeah. Um, and so this, the Turing story for me was always this great... Um, this great source of, of inspiration and meaning, you know, here was this guy who won the second world war and invented the computer and his name was not popularly known because he was gay and he committed suicide. And, and how did the script come to you? Um, so how old were you when you got this project? Well, so I wanted to write about Turing forever, my whole life. Um, I just found the story, as you can tell from the conversation we're having, it was like everything that I was interested in in one figure, right? Like all of my interests uh, sort of collided uh, in in the life of Alan Turing. And, you know, I got to, my first book came out, got to Hollywood, um, was doing sort of some work here and there. And, you know, I'd call around to my, um, my agents and managers and say like, hey, there's this script I really want to write about um, a gay British mathematician in the 40s. And at the end, um, he's going to kill himself. And everyone's like, oh my God, please don't. Like, that's the, you're, that's an unmakeable film. No one will ever finance that film. Uh, no one will ever see that film. So I'd sort of always put it away. And then just after I got into LA, um, I didn't really know that many people in town, but I went to, I got invited to this cocktail party 
at the house of this woman, Nora, who um, I barely knew at the time. I'd met her a couple times. She's my age. Um, I think she didn't even mean to invite me. It was like the thing on Gmail where she meant to invite a different gram, but I showed up, so I <laughs> end up going to this party, and I don't really know anyone, so it's like, all right, I'll go to this party, try and meet some people, and I go, and I see Nora in the kitchen. Um, she's I remember distinctly she's pouring this like St. Germain cocktail that she always drinks. Um uh, St. Germain and vodka. And so I, I go in and say, Hey, it's Graham. No, the other one. Thanks for inviting me to this party. And she says, what's going on? What are you up to? I say, and she says, Oh, you know, um, I've been working for a studio for a little while and I hate it. I hate the sort of corporate environment of this. Um, so I've saved up some money from my paychecks and I have my producing partner and I, we've optioned our first book, and we're going to we're gonna try and be producers. And we don't know how to do it, but we're just going to... We bought the rights to this book, and now we're going to try and get this movie made. And I sort of say, cheers, have a drink. That's amazing. Congrats on finding a way to start working outside the system. What's the book about? And she says, oh, it's this biography of this mathematician. You've never <laughs> heard of him. Um, I ask for more information. She says, Alan Turing. And so I instantly... This is beyond... It's crazy. Amazing. So I instantly launch into this totally insufferable, like, 15-minute monologue of, I've wanted to do this since I was 16. This is how the movie starts. This is how the movie ends. This is the whole thing. And she's, like, inching away from me, <laughs> beat my beat, you yeah. know? Um, who is this psycho? How did he get in my... I'm in her kitchen. So it's like, how did he even get in the house? Um, but so then began this process of me and Nora and her producing partner her and friend Ido. Um, I started begging them to let me write the script. I did it on spec. You know, no, they didn't have any money to pay me. I had a little bit of cash uh, left over from the Sherlockian, which had just come out. And so I said, okay. How did you know how to write a screenplay? I had done a little work in television. Mm -hmm. um, I had written a couple screenplays with, um, with my friend Ben, um, who was a filmmaker. He was a film student, right? Yeah, he yeah. was a film student mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, I had known since since the laboratory school at the University of Chicago. Um, I I had written a couple things before. I'd never written something like this, a sort of serious piece of drama and, and historical fiction, or his, history in that case. And uh, But Sherlockian taught me how to. I mean, I learned, I think, from that how to do research and how to kind of mm -hmm. – um, digest a very long and complicated story into a, a much smaller period of, of time. And so, you know, it was just something the three of us just started it because we loved it. And we just thought it was such a beautiful story. And we, I sort of had this idea of, oh, I'm going to take six months, right? And I had actually just started my second book, The Last Days of Night, mm -hmm. which is now six years later, finally out. But at the time, it was like, okay, my next, like, I write books for a living. That's my job. Um, so I need to get back to my second book, but I'm going to take six months off and... And that's how long it took you to write the script. <laughs> well, it's like, that was the idea. The oh, idea was six months off, write the script, send it to Noronito, um, and, you know, this movie's never getting made, so I just need to do this. I just need to get this out. Um, and then six months turn into a year, and then two years, and then this ends five years later, and we're all at the Academy Awards. Yeah, that's a pretty good ending to the story. <laughs> it's certainly a much happier ending than anything I could have imagined. Um, but so throughout that process, uh, whenever I'd have downtime from the film, I'd be kind of working on this book. I just want to button up the imitation game discussion by saying it was a really powerful film. Thank I you mean, so much. And uh, I know it's... Uh, it's 
it's not in theaters anymore, obviously, but it's still, if people haven't seen it, they should see it. Let's talk about your other project, the one that your book just got published uh, recently, this week, but uh, in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, talk a little little bit uh, about it, and uh, because it's it's an incredible, incredibly interesting historical moment. Yeah, I think one of the things. So, the last days of night, my new novel is um, about. It's a, based on a true story about the fight between this great rivalry between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse. Um, it's a true story. Um, in 1888, Thomas Edison uh, sued his arch rival George Westinghouse over violating his patent on his greatest invention, the light bulb. Edison sues Westinghouse for what was valued to be worth about a billion dollars in 1888. So yeah, you imagine that might be the sort of money worth going to court over. So in response, Westinghouse did something totally insane. Westinghouse hired a 26-year-old attorney who was 18 months out of Columbia Law School who had never really had a client before, much less tried a case, to be his lead litigator on what I would suggest is the largest lawsuit in American history. Um, and uh, this, his name is Paul Cravath, and he will later, lawyers in the audience may recognize his name, he will later go on to run what becomes Cravath, Swain, and Moore and become one of the most influential attorneys of, of the 20th century. Um, and this was his first case, uh, the light bulb suit. So I think what got me interested in this was, um, you know, at the time I started working on it, I had sort of... How did it come to your attention? Well, so I had just become... My first book was coming out, and I had, like, just become a professional writer, you know, just sort of a few months before. And I was kind of going through this whole emotional, like, existential thing. Like, what does that mean? Now I'm... Now it is my profession to have ideas and to write (laughs) about them. And what does it mean to, like, have ideas as your profession? Uh, and to make things, to create things for a living. And so that got me sort of reading about, as usual, scientists and people who also did that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, Edison and Westinghouse invented the light bulb, and I write historical fiction, so I'm not putting these on equal footing. But, you know, I think what got me excited was this idea that Edison, Westinghouse, and, and Nikola Tesla, who's like the third leg in this tripod, they each sort of thought they were the one who invented the light bulb. How did three different people each think they were the one who did this? Um, And they hated each other because of it. These are three guys who should have had the most in common. Like, they did the same work. They worked on the same projects. Um, You know, I... I imagine that when you talk to campaign folks from opposing campaigns, there's this like mutual respect and yeah. understanding. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have the same job, and you yes. can discuss things. We on a talk technical. about that a lot here. Yeah, I have a, a lot of uh, people from the other party. And, yeah. I've I've heard, um, uh, and uh, so, but they just despised each other, and that's uh-huh. what was so interesting to me: is how do three people who kind of should have the most in common come to despise each other so much. It also was in the context of a time when this was this was going to change the country. So the authorship of the light bulb and the furtherance of electric lighting uh, was something that each of them wanted their imprint on. 
Very much so. I mean, I think it's easy to take for granted now, but one of the things when I started doing research that just blew me away was reading the diaries, the journals, the letters of people at the time. Uh, sort of living through this period when the night sky was being electrified, lit up for the first time. I mean, people described it in their diaries, seeing an electric light bulb for the first time, as if they had seen a new color. It was something so shocking that their skin looked a different tone. Their their whole experience, the world changed. I mean, it was this massive hinge moment in American history. There's all these cultural changes that start happening because of it. Um, you now can light up indoor spaces 24 hours a day really effectively. So factories can run 24 hours. Right. And you can start putting the men who work there on shifts. Um, people can get up and work in the middle of the night. Public spaces, uh, parks and whatnot are lit up and crime rates start dropping precipitously because it's hard to rob someone if it's really bright out. Um, so there's this, all these great... You're, you're, you're the detail in, these, in this book uh, about New York at that time and, and, uh, uh, and the characters themselves... What is very, very sort of granular, and and how how much research did you have to do? Um, kind of an infinite amount, and it still hasn't ended. I mean, I think one of the great things about about working on something like this is I can even now keep reading about it and keep um, learning more about it. You um, obviously feel like you know these characters. <laughs> these you you have lived with these characters. You mentioned earlier that Edison was a great manipulator of the press in the book, they bemoan Westinghouse and, and Cravath bemoan his relationship with the New York Times, like he owns the New York Times. So um, um, Ethical standards for newspapers were perhaps not as high in the 1880s and 90s as they were today. Yes, Edison was famous for giving friendly reporters stock in his company in exchange wow. for favorable stories. Um, that is a real... Could have kept me in journal. <laughs> Uh, it was it was a it was a crazy time, and Edison was great with the press. I mean, he he was he was the master salesman. Uh, I mean, this is the thing that got me excited to write the book is what I saw in Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla were three irreconcilable views of what it means to make something, and I think that was the heart of their disagreement. I think. Edison was the salesman. He was going to sell the most light bulbs, and his name was on the cover of every newspaper. His face was rendered in every magazine. Um, he essentially invents the concept of modern branding. He puts the word Edison in the same font with a little oval around it, so it looks like a cattle brand on every, on the side of every product. Jeez, these, these days, he could be running for president of the United <laughs> States. I bet you if it was these days, he would have. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and so he's this tremendous salesman. At the same time, you know, George Westinghouse for me was the craftsman. He wanted to make the best light bulbs. He, yeah, his were going to take longer and they were going to come out later and they were going to be more expensive, but they were going to be better. They were going to use all the right parts. They were going mm -hmm. to last longer, be brighter. It was all about crafting perfect products. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think we can see in many of our inventors or kind of scientists today. And then Tesla, conversely, was this kind of... Tesla was the idea man. He was the guy who... Um, he worked for Edison. He works for Edison, gets quits slash gets fired, goes off on his own for a bit, then tries to go work for Westinghouse, and then quits slash gets fired. He mm -hmm. could, couldn't work in these corporate environments. He was... Um, a quirky guy. A quirky guy. I think 
the word we would use now to describe him, I would suggest, is schizophrenic. Um, mm-hmm. That word did not exist then, and it's a little, I think, tricky to diagnose people 100 years later. Um, but he had visions, and he heard voices, and a lot of these attributes that we associate. But brilliant. With. Brilliant. And he would, in fact, in his diary, in his autobiography, um, Tesla wrote this very curious autobiography, and he kind of ascribes his technological inventions to his visions and to his voices and says they allowed him to essentially figuratively see the world in a way that no one else had because he was literally viewing the world in a way that no one else had. Um, and But Tesla never quite made devices. Like, he would have these ideas, and then once the idea worked, he was out. Like, the nitty-gritty of actually making them uh-huh. function bored So him. he was on the other polar opposite of Westinghouse in the sense that Westinghouse was all about producing things. He was about conceiving of them. Exactly. And this dynamic of like, what does it mean to make something, I would suggest that to make something as brilliant as the light bulb, you need a bit of all three. You need an Edison, a Westinghouse, and a Tesla. And I'm sure you notice this. I think about this all the time. Like, what am I being today? Am I being like an Edison, a Westinghouse, or a Tesla? I'm sure you notice it on, you know, campaigns and the other group projects you've worked on. Like, you need these different dynamics. Yes, yes. Absolutely. But these guys were in a competitive kind of environment. And uh, now, uh, historical novels, how, how, how much of this can, is your invention, to use the mm-hmm. appropriate term here, and how, you know, because it's a, it's a gripping storyline, uh, and how much of it is uh, drawn from your research? Uh, so it's a it's a tricky question to answer, um, and uh, essentially, you know, on a sentence by sentence level, one sentence will be completely one hundred percent historically accurate, and the following sentence will be entirely an invention of mine. Um, there's a there's a ten page author's note at the very end that sort of goes through all the major beats, um, and kind of talks about what's real and what's not, and why I've made changes. Um, when I have. Um, we've actually posted on the website. Uh, there's a we've made two timelines, so you can see the kind of timeline of events as presented in the novel, and then next to it, you can see the timeline of events uh, in real life and see how they match. The basic idea of it is that every major event described in the book did did happen, but not necessarily in that order. And the people I've described as being there, I can't necessarily prove were there, mm-hmm. but they might have been. And especially when we, for a lot of this stuff, we don't have great documentation. We don't know exactly what the conversation was in the room where Westinghouse hires Paul Cravath, his lawyer. So one of the great thrills of of writing this as a novel is that I got to imagine what it must have felt like for Paul. I got to put the reader inside his head to to see the world of 1888, to see these figures. I mean, imagine being this 26-year-old lawyer from Tennessee, and you just moved to New York, and now you're staring at Thomas Edison, the most famous man in the world. Did you did you have access to any of his diaries or any of his writings? How did you get inside his head? So Paul was tricky. There's a couple kind of profiles on him from later in his life. There's a Good New Yorker piece from 1932, but there's... um. Uh, we don't have a lot of documentation. And actually, I went to the law firm that still bears his name in New York um, a while back, and I went in and uh, kind of talked my way into a meeting with the managing partner, um, whose name is Alan, and described the project I was working on and if they had any documents. And he sort of says, oh, I'll look, and we kind of keep chatting about it. And then at some point, he was like, he, he was like, well, I mean, I guess I do have this box. And I was like, well, okay, Alan, what? 
what's in the box. And he's like, well, it's a box of letters between Paul Cravath and George Westinghouse. I'm like, that seems oh, useful. So, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I'm yeah. asking for. Can I, can you show me the box? And he tells me, oh, uh, no, I can't. Um, because this box is still protected by attorney-client privilege. Um, I, as a non-lawyer, did not know this, but attorney-client privilege is not waived by death. So uh, the firm... You ever get into the box? So we've been having this conversation now for You still a haven't and a half. gotten into it. So I was there the other day. I was literally last week, went to New York and met with him again. Now the book's coming out because um, they read it and they're being really supportive. Um, and they will not show me the box. Um, and... And I keep making these jokes about it. Like, I keep being like, hey, so Alan, maybe you just leave me alone in the room with the box and walk away for five <laughs> minutes and no one knows. And he's like, Graham, that's not funny. We're attorneys. That's a violation of ethical rules. Well, that's and how a dare refreshing. you suggest that we would ever do something like that? But he, uh, now you barged into someone's kitchen, mistakenly invited, and ended up writing an Academy Award winning script. <laughs> now your book's been optioned. Your book is going to actually be a film that starts filming in the beginning of the year, right? Uh, it is. I know we're almost doing it professionally this time. Almost. <laughs> um, so, and helpfully, the almost is probably because it is the same um, cast of misfits uh, who made the imitation game uh, kind of behind the scenes are coming together. And, to and make who, who, who are the, so, who's going to play the characters? Um, so our, uh, my friend Morton, who directed Imitation Game, is directing it. Uh, the same producers from Imitation are producing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Eddie Redmayne, the actor who we've wanted not to work bad, for a long not time. Not a bad choice. He'll be Paul Cravath, and, and we're working on the rest of the cast now. Um, but it's great. It's, it's, it's a team of people Inc who have wanted to be rejoined with for a while. I want to be, before we leave, I, I want to read something to you, and I want, I want you to talk a little bit about whether this was about him or whether this was about you. Mm -hmm. Paul had always wanted to be a prodigy, but what no one ever told him was that prodigies don't feel like prodigies. They feel old. They feel like has-beens just at the moment that they're said to be blossoming. Um, and you go on in that vein. Um, you're a prodigy. I mean, I, you, know, you may not want the, that uh, designation, but you're a 34-year-old guy who's had enormous success. You're a creative force. Um, what are the burdens associated with that? Um, gosh, that's such, it, well, so I don't necessarily feel like one. I think that was something I felt. It was writing that passage about what it must have felt like to be Paul Cravath was something that felt a little bit autobiographical. And the thing of sort of not feeling like a prodigy, feeling as if I'm doing the, the same work now, uh, I'm interested in the same kinds of things that I was interested in 10 years ago, and I'm continuing to sort of passionately devote myself to the same interests. I think there's also, you know, something I've thought about in the last year or two, kind of post-Academy Awards and all that, is, you know, that I won an Academy Award at 33. So my most kind of public on-television success has already occurred. Um, you, like, I'll never have something quite that public again or unless like, you win another academy <laughs> i think the how many people how many writers in history have done that it's like 10 or something in all history um but that but but i guess my question is i i had some success not of that magnitude but uh, i would argue david but, that you've done pretty well but, for yourself but at a young age and um i always found myself kind of wondering if that was if that you know i mean it's important to keep focused on the work because if you worry about sort of whether you can equal what you did before, you begin competing with yourself rather than 
focusing on on the work. You obviously have uh, you've navigated that. Thank you. I don't. I mean, I guess it's a question of how you think about competing with yourself, and I, I'm curious to hear how you describe it. But I know I've felt. I, like I, you wrote some great. You wrote a great book. You've written a second. I would say great book. Um, but each time you write a book, you know that people are going to say uh, judge it relative to your other works. Yes, and I think that here's where the self competition that I find useful is to say, okay, I've. I hope my second book is better than my first. I hope my second film is better than my first. I hope I can keep producing better work. That doesn't necessarily mean more publicly successful. That doesn't mean I need to sell more copies. That doesn't mean I need to win more awards. It just means I want to keep pushing myself to do work that I think is better. I I think my second book is better than my first. I hope my third book is better than this one. Are you working on any new projects? Um, I'm starting a third novel, um, and uh, they'll probably be a couple other things uh in the meantime as we start to get this film ready to shoot in what's January. the what's that now about can you disclose i can't talk about it we're still in the early phases so i'm still talking to a bunch of experts do you have research help i have a wonderful young man named kia who uh is my research assistant um and he uh it was sort of a he came into my life about a year year and a half ago and i hadn't had a research assistant before that and it at first, I was very wary of it because it was like I was so OCD about it that I had to read everything myself and right. do everything myself. Um, and uh, even now, what I've found is it's it's hard to sort of completely not re- go through something myself. Like I just... But you have faith in the guy. I have faith in the guy and in helping to find details in things that I think are interesting. And then also what I've found... Does is he having, bring stuff to you and say, you really ought to look at this. This, this is a really... Yeah, interesting has, uh, revelation. Here. He's very, um, he's very self motivated. So he'll sort of say, "Hey, I, th- I just heard about this book. I don't think you're going to want to read it because you're going to think it sounds uh, boring. But I'm going to go look at it, and if there's something in it that's useful, I'll bring it to you. And mm-hmm. great. Um, and then also to have someone else who's going through all the same material that I am, who I can sort of talk about it with. Mm-hmm. Did you think this was interesting? Did you think that was interesting? Um, and he can edit me a little and say you know, this point of uh, science that you think is fascinating, no other human being on earth will think this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Don't put this in the book. Yes. And that's... That's good. Uh, really good. So you've got a, 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 a nascent novel, mm-hmm. a third book, and a, another film project? Uh, so we'll be doing the film of Last Days of Night, so I'm getting ready for Are you that. writing that script? I have written that script. We oh. are, uh, I think we're on draft 11. So you need an taping. Oscar for original material now. <laughs> So you can't, can you get an Oscar, if you wrote the book, does it fit into, the, what category does it go in? Um, I am not an expert on this, but I believe that is technically adapted, because there is pre-existing published Adapted material. from your own book. Uh, I believe that is how it works. I know. Well, we'll see when you, when you go up there to make your, <laughs> your second speech. Uh, from your lips to someone's ears. <laughs> Graham Moore, uh, you're an inspiration in many ways, and I appreciate your... As I said, your uh, willingness to speak out about uh, about depression, but I also uh, really admire uh, your work and the joy that you've brought uh, people and the enlightenment that you've brought people through the work that you do. So I'm looking forward to your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh books, and may it go on for a very long time. That is extremely kind of you. Thank you so much for this chat. 
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.